Welcome to the 9642 Podcast. This is your host, Mr. Number 9. And this is The Fool. Hello, everyone. We are doing an end-of-season uh, wrap for our podcast. We're going to talk yeah. about Premiership. If we have time, you might talk about other things, but yeah, we'll yeah. go through our personal highlights and lowlights for the year. Yeah. For the season, rather, because we've had our year <laughs> one in December. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, why did you start off? What was your sporty uh, premiership-related highlight or football-related highlight this season? I think um, most of my highlight came early in the season. I mean, we were Chelsea was playing well. Everything was looking good. Lukaku was being awesome and looking like he was worth the money we'd spent to, to bring him over. So yeah, it was that, sort of that first third, nearly half season. There was, there was lots to like about that. Everything was going reasonably well. Everything was looking good. Then things happened, but things happen all the time. The wonderful yeah. world of, of football, English football over Christmas. Some injuries, sicknesses, COVID... Lukaku going, sticking his foot in his mouth, um, all sorts of fun. I will clarify that that interview was like six was... weeks before, oh, yeah, before no, he no. moved to Chelsea, you know? Oh, no, 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 it was recorded in November. It was recorded after he moved to Chelsea, but it was recorded in like early November. Yeah. There was a lot of things that was taken out of context in that, and it wasn't as, it was a little different to um, what it was, but it came out at a bad time basically in the end yeah. when it actually got released was he'd gotten injured just come back then got COVID was out the team had started to lose we'd lost um Chilwell I think Reese James was injured yeah there was a couple of other injuries in there as well everything is sort of was falling apart and then the interview came and then yeah. he returned and he wasn't as well and and there's good arguments to say it wasn't his fault that he wasn't as good, or that things weren't as good. I uh, um, did listen to a good podcast where it squarely pointed out that two things, that Lukaku was playing in a... He's playing a different role than what he was playing in Inter. In Inter, he was one of two strikers, so he was coming back, getting the ball a lot, turning, running with the ball, and running into space with the ball a lot, and, 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 and running at defences. And having an ability to sort of also a strike partner either to lay off to or get it from. But at Chelsea, he's playing the lone striker. So there's a lot of hanging up front, getting the ball, holding it, and then playing it forward to the um, two wingers. Yeah. So whoever's playing um, with him. And it's just slightly different. And it, it meant that you can't look at his overall stats and go, oh, look at it into here. It was all this better. Like actually, he was playing a completely different game and a completely different system. And the other thing that just looking at numbers showed was that the big difference was losing was basically losing Chilwell. Chilwell was a big part of it and Reese James was out for a reasonable amount of injured. So when the, t- when the two of them were injured was the period where Lukaku was quote unquote at his worst. He um, kind of needed a bit of time to recover from injury and COVID. Like mm. almost every athlete has a different recovery from COVID. Thing. Like, and it kind of depends how it goes for them, and it's not necessarily related to how severe the injury is. No, uh, like the illnesses, like 
famously uh, in the NFL, um, Lamar Jackson got COVID and he had to miss like a game in the the 2021 season. And oh, he's, he's vaccinated and everything, so he yeah. did. Uh, he said that basically, unlike a lot of other people, a lot of people in the NFL were like, oh, yeah, we're young. And once we got the illness, we just kind of it was chill, like it was vibes. We stayed home. Uh, we still managed to train and whatnot. Yeah. Whereas Lamar was literally like, yeah, I just went home and slept. That's all I could do. <laughs> I couldn't do anything but sleep. But it turned yeah. out to be a blessing in disguise for him because, you know, he wasn't putting any wear and tear on his body. And, you know, what he was making... Make it, what he was, what he didn't have in reps, he made up for with body recovery. And he, because he's young, like just the raw athleticism helps. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's um, true as well. So, but, yeah. but a lot of people like who didn't have that tough a COVID session like come back really slowly because you know their bodies actually has had stuff they just haven't felt it. Yeah, and and that was probably like say Lukaku got it just he'd just come back from being injured. I think he was back, had played like two weeks, maybe three, yeah. and then he got COVID. So that's also going to have impact. Like he was injured, so his body was still recovering. Yeah. Then he gets COVID. Like it's, yeah, that's not going to help either. And so then he comes back after that, and the people he had been getting the most service from and therefore looking the most dangerous were out injured as well or uh, whatever. So that sort of things. And the likes of Mount had sort of, fallen off as well on their ability also due to all the things going on there so you can sort of see how that you know you can't expect him to be a one-man band and do everything himself and be like some magical thing just because Lukaku's playing suddenly he's scoring a million goals it's like he needs there's lots of things that go into that um yeah and and though the big one that was pointed out that I saw was that obviously in the Chelsea system He's not expected to run with the ball, like get the ball, turn and run. That's not what he's doing. That's not his role and things. But at uh, Milan, the previous season, that's what he did like a lot, a lot and was super yeah. dangerous. And that was where he was at his most dangerous was when he had ball at feet, running at defences and with space and could run in the ball into space and either lay it off, you know, run it, pass or have a shot himself. Um he was that's um, where he's creating the most chances. I am gonna say it because this is a blast from the past, which I think you might enjoy. I feel like uh Lukaku has the Emil Heskey problem. Because yeah. he's big and strong and athletic and uh he's from Africa, uh or at least of African descent, even though he's you know, his footballing education is all from Belgium. Yeah. The thing in England is they expect him to be a target man, you know, and he's yeah. not, nothing proved shown that he's ever been that player. No. Just because he grew up loving Didier Drogba doesn't mean they're the same player. And yeah, exactly. Like, even when he was at West Brom, he wasn't, he's like the support striker. He's the number two guy uh, behind, like, sure, I don't think he's as technical as, um, uh, Emil Heskey, who I think was a really good passer, really good at finding, uh, gener- uh, you know, attracting defenders and drawing them away, like that positional sense that he yeah. had. Um, and I think Emil Heskey had a better first touch, but you yeah, know, yeah, it's. I mean, that uh, does let those... Lukaku down a bit as first touch. I I think yeah. Lukaku 
does do the the target man role well as well when he gets good service. It's just that he can't. He's not the perfect target man. You know the he's one that's sort a, of. He's not a number nine specialist. He no. can play it if at a pinch. Yeah. But against good teams with good defenses, if he's your number nine, you're not gonna get that. You're not gonna get the. Uh, you know, the well, forward possession that you're looking for. Well, at least not off the Or scratch. the goals. You're not yeah. going to get the goals that you, you yeah, need. Well, you, because... you need to have a bit more quality in the in the feeds coming into him, the crosses coming, or the balls coming in. Like, it needs... It's that difference between, you know, uh, the, the true number nine who anything coming in can get it, hold it, and, and, and do the role. Whilst Lukaku can do it reasonably well not excellent not world class but if he's especially if he's got the good if he had good um crosses coming in or good passes that he could do then it's fine but it was when it's that quality from the feed dropped off which came from injuries and a bit of disruption and all sorts of other things going on it just showed that that yeah exactly that's not his his style and whilst he could do it it wasn't going to be an ongoing um thing which makes me a little sad because it would be when you look at the numbers and look at the way where changes happen, you're like, oh, if we used him the way that actually suits his play style or at least kept him so, in, and played in that way, when, when we needed that, that's what we used. And a little bit more of the city way, which is very much, you know, horses for horses, who's, which is the players that are going to to give us the win this time, those are the ones playing with that. Um, yeah. Thing. But, like, it's yeah. interesting to me that Manchester City have nobody in their team who's played more than 29 games. Yeah. League games. Yeah. Like, this I shows you was... how well they rotate their squad. I thought one of the defenders have made 32 or 31. They but have yeah. been a con- a Consalo. Yeah. Just because he does everything. Yes. Like, barring um, Edison, of course... Yeah, yeah, field players. But yeah, I know that was the other thing they I had pointed out in the same um, podcast was like Jack Grealish, the city. Like, was it a hundred million pound player? Was it twenty three games or twenty four games? <laughs> but the point out his stats are actually really awesome. Like, if you look at any of his, like people would say, oh, not worth it. He hasn't played. Doesn't you know? Actually, look at the stats and the things he's bringing to the team. Like, no, nope, he's actually performing really well and as perhaps you know their second best player next to uh, Kevin De Bruyne like that means he's worth the money and that's what City play that's why I say they make sure that the people out on the field are the people they need out on the field on that day like who are we yeah. playing like, how are we, we going can, to win this game we can make fun of the fact that J- J- uh, Guardiola is consistently tinkering with his teams yeah. like and like so, a lot of times to his detriment. But it's also the strength of Guardiola is the yeah. fact that he's always tinkering with his teams and trying to, like, he he doesn't see a static board. He like sees the dynamic game state. Yeah. Which, uh, like you know, and which means that you're gonna make mistakes because you know you never you know you, so many things are about probabilities in the moment when you're playing with the dynamic board state. Like yeah, it's exactly. interesting to me that Guardiola says that he learned to do this by watching rugby. That is interesting. 
and like this is where I, he like consistently watches rugby games to learn about how to evolve in a game state because like the whole breakdowns of the ruck and malls are like that's what really interests him and how the different like good teams the backs set up like they're consistently watching what the forwards are doing they move around and set themselves up depending on what the position uh, what's happening in the breakdown yeah and like yeah, yeah. Uh, the whole picking your squad for game states like because rugby until recently was allowing a lot of substitutions yeah you could implement players in the like i think one of the strengths of steve hansen is that he knew the right player to bring in yeah and that was very much the strength even in the graham well later graham henry days and definitely steve hansen was yeah for the all blacks was that they were a 23 man team and Everybody yeah. had their role and everybody knew what it was and there was no... Everybody could execute their part of the plan, whichever part of the squad they were, whether they were starting 15 or coming on later. They knew what that meant and they knew how they could do that. And like the All Blacks strategy, which is keep the ball alive, keep the ball alive, doesn't matter what happens. As long as the ball's alive, we can win. Yeah. Like that's very much, very similar to... The city strategy yeah. of like keep the ball, keep the ball, keep the ball. Yeah. I think a, a good example of just Guardiola and City this year and that tinkering and keeping alive with things was in fact the last game where um, you know he subbed at halftime, subbed out um, Fernandinho and brought in Sinchenko. Um, and he said after the game he did it like Fernandinho's last game. You take him off at halftime like he's not that bad a game. It's like, well, no, it was just we needed width on the left. We needed someone to stretch the game. So he he brought in a naturally left-footed player to play on the left to create the width, and it it basically you know worked amazingly, and arguably won City the the championship um, with that one move. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, that's, to me, that's the that just shows that style, which is. What is the thing that we need? We need someone on the left who plays a left-footed player on the left. Okay, who are we taking off? Which one's going to? Yeah, how is this actually making this work? Up, oh, Fernandinho, you're off. Sinchenko, you're on. And it's like, didn't matter that it was you know Fernandinho's last game and all the rest and all the stuff around that. It's like, no, we need the win. This is how we're winning. And you can. See See that Fernandinho was like, yep, no, that that's a good move. Like, this is how we win. Okay, I'm on board with that. Even though it's his last game and everything as well. Like, he's just, yep, that's cool. Good move. So, yeah. I thought that just, it just showed all of everything about City. And, and Guardiola and how it all works together. And the stat of, yeah. you know, how little game, well, you know, most of the players are playing 23 to 25 or 26 games for the whole season. And... Yeah. Like having that, they have a philosophy to fall back on. So when in doubt, city players know what they have to do if they, yeah, uh, if they're not, you know, if the game state's not not obvious. And like I think Guardiola very much buys into the four phases, yeah, theory oh. of uh, football. Like he, that's why his teams very rarely get caught out in transition, mm. except in Champions League knockout games. But. <laughs> Like, mm. but it's one of those things. Like it, 
like, it was obviously bad to have Fernandinho uh, on for as long as they did in that game. Yeah. Uh, like, they, like, Ancelotti almost played it perfectly. Like, I think Ancelotti basically out-tacticked both Klopp and Guardiola. Yeah. Back-to-back games. And he said after the game that, you know, Liverpool's kind of (laughs) predictable. Yeah. Like, he got lucky with City. Don't get me wrong. Like, that was a... And, like, Guardiola just made a mistake. It wasn't, like, he wouldn't usually do something like Like, as you very clearly mentioned, you know, he's willing to change the tactics of his team just based on the game state because he views the dynamic game state. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, like, uh, I don't think Klopp does that. Like, Klopp is a bit more married to the philosophy. And, like, obviously he also has a smaller squad. Yeah. Realistically, if we think that Liverpool are the only team that can challenge City, they have to hope everything goes right for them and City's foul up somewhere. Or they have a bad season, like lots of injuries, like the season after COVID. You know, the the season just before COVID. Yeah. I like to think Chelsea uh, can can run with those two. but yeah, I, I think they might on paper, but like just practically, like what's always happened. Yeah. And yeah. like Tuchel doesn't seem to have that same. Like he's gonna evolve. Like it's it's very hard to judge Tuchel. He's never had a full season. That's like you have a full season of stuff. Like you know, <laughs> just sort it out. Yeah, that's. And fair. like, and he. You know, he's always had something and he's always had to deal with the crisis in many ways, similar to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Mm-hmm. And like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is classic Mark Anthony type, really good in a crisis. Yeah. Because <laughs> he's all about the man management. And I think that's why Ancelotti, like that's one of his strengths, right? He's a really and a really good man manager, and he does he kind of lets the tact he he doesn't ignore tactics, but he's happy to keep it simple and let yeah. the play and play it to the, like he doesn't need a philosophy. He's happy to adapt his tactics based on the team he has. Yeah, yeah. Which is arguably like the best quality for a manager to have. Well, it's yeah, it's good when he when they can. Do you know instigate that? Like actually, be like, oh, what have oh, we got? got? How does squad, this? And then which, get the best out of it as well. Like, like if you've got a good team, like if you've got a good squad, which Ancelotti does, mm-hmm. I think it would be very remiss to say that he doesn't get the best out of a group of good players because he lets them do. It's they're in a different way to the way Pep does. You know, Pep very much gets the best out of them by making them play the Pep way, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he trains them to play the Pep way. They're good players, but he adapts them to fit his way and then make them more effective in his system. Whereas Ancelotti just goes, okay, I have a player that can do this, this, and this. Let's build a system and go, you guys you know, you guys know what to do. This is where I'm putting you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's like, what is the best... Um... Well, with these players, what is the best system to play? As opposed to, what players do I need to best play this system? Yeah, like, it's hard for, Like, other than Lionel Messi, like, especially in City with the kind of resources they have now, like, I don't think you'll have a Benzema-type talisman player in City. Yeah. There are too many, like, it's too evenly spread around. Yeah, yeah. But, like, the counter to that is a talisman-like 
Benzema, who just comes up and, like, puts the team on his back. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I've had this argument with, or rather this conversation with my cousins in Canberra. Like, you, I think you and I agree that Benzema deserves Ballon d'Or, like, without... Oh, 100%. Uh, especially since it's going to be given out before the World Cup. But yeah. it's just that when your talisman is a striker, it hits different. Mm-mm. Like, or like a goal scorer type. It hits different, like the guy who generates attacking threats and like, because everybody holds out, like all your worst players, if they're in the defense or something, they will hold out. They'll try and keep the ball out just because they know as long as they don't get too far back, this guy can bring us back into the game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Out of nowhere. Yeah. Like Manchester United had that with Eric Cantona and then like Cristiano Ronaldo when he had that season. Yeah. Uh, his Ballon d'Or season at United. And then similarly, we had like Jamie Vardy at Leicester. Yeah. Like, I'm not taking anything away from players like Mahrez and all of them. They were all, they, everybody, and Kante, of yeah. course. But, you know, if they didn't have Vardy and if like he wasn't such a talismanic striker, not just a good striker. Yeah, yeah. I was saying, he was definitely, yeah, the, the, the central piece that they were all building themselves around. Like, the others may have got a lot more of the, you know, they were better players and got the, the rewards from it. You know, Kante came to us, Mahrez went to City, all the sort of stuff. But, yeah, that that season for Leicester was because of Vardy. He was, he's the one that, that pulled them through that. The rest of them were playing well off him and giving him the ball so he could do something with it. But yeah. they were, it felt like they were following him more than Yeah, 100%. Well... If not following him, but he. Maybe, there were times when the yeah. team. The, there were times when the team were like desperate, uh, but they, like they were, they felt like they were in a desperate situation, but they stayed calm and just won games because, you know, the they knew Vardy would get them a goal if yeah. they gave them half a chance because he's just that sort of player. Yeah, yeah. And it's different if your talisman's a a midfielder or a. Uh, defender, like, you know, there are times when United's talisman has been Roy Keane. You know, like, he just sit yeah. there and put the team on his back and get the passes. But, you know, unless he's going out of his way to go out and try and score goals, because Roy Keane could score them as well. He, you know, it w- it's not the same as having someone like Eric Cantona or James Vardy. Yeah, yeah. And it's a different type of talismanic thing, because he's like the captain leader type as well. And uh, like Chelsea had it with with John Terry. As I was gonna say, it's it's. I think the late two thousands. It's interesting to try. Actually, twenty ten. It's interesting to try work out who it is when we had John Terry, who was clearly very talismanic and yeah, the talismanic defender and the captain and the hard man. And that he also had um, Frank Lampard and yeah, he he also fitted the same thing and was the midfielder creator, but also running through box to box, getting back, getting up, scoring goals. You know, yeah, yeah, like Stevie but, and Stevie G at Liverpool, yeah. right? Like and we the... had Drogba as well doing the similar things. You know, when you talk about a talismanic Drogba was striker. your big game player, yeah. right? But he wasn't the talisman because there were games where he just wouldn't but couldn't still, be bothered. Yeah, but still, if you need, if it was a game where you needed the goal force, you know, the win was needed for something, you know, he was going to get the goal in that. 
Yeah. It, maybe if it was a game that like uh, this doesn't feel like it means much. It's uh, it's you've got others that can score and they've scored. You know, yeah, sure. He's not gonna. He wasn't gonna score in every game, and he wasn't scoring. Yeah. But if there was a big important goal that needed scoring, or there was a game that was just like it needed the win and everything, it's like ah, oh, you knew Drogba was gonna score a goal at the end. If if you know, I mean that was the was it 2012 Champions League campaign to a I've rarely seen Drogba play well when the rest of the team is playing poorly. Like, that's what a talisman does when the rest of the team's losing morale, playing poorly. Like, if they put him on... Like, John Terry's put Chelsea on his oh, back when no, 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 that's... Chelsea's just absolutely... Like, you know, they feel like they're having a laugh and John Terry just comes up going like, you're not passing me. I don't care how crap my teammates are playing today. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're, oh, no, I'm, I'm still JT. Yeah, no. Like, John T Like, all three of them, I thought... I think at different times filled the talismanic role in their own ways and sometimes sort of in the same season um, in different ways and yeah in each of their own iconic ways and yes definitely John Terry was that like it's doesn't matter what else is happening in this game you're not scoring goals <laughs> like I don't care yeah. exactly how bad things are going we are not we're not conceding um, it's just that's just the way of it, and this defense is getting organized, and if I have to go grab some heads and whack them together to get them in the right place, that's what's happening, and people will go, oh yeah, oh John, thanks for that, sorry, yeah, we totally were like zoned out, let us get into the right place, and it's like, yeah, get in the right place, thank you. Yeah. So yeah, and, and, and I would, if, for that reason, I would pick John Terry as my, as the talismanic player, for most mm. of the 2000s. Yeah. But I just find it interesting that when you think about it, when you look at it, like that Lampard also did things like that, and he did did the same thing where he made sure, like if we needed the goal, he was he was there. He scored some big goals. He scored some important goals. He scored goals where everything just looked flat. Um, oh yeah, yeah. You're right. The, and yeah. in many ways, I think for you guys, after those guys retired or retired or left the club, mm. it was Eden Hazard, right? Like there yeah. were so many games oh, where Eden Hazard Mata, was probably one Mata. Mata first as sort of a holding bit, but yeah, Eden Hazard was the next lengthy um, talisman as such. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's not necessarily doing as well at Real. A, I think they're playing him not in an optimal position mm. and B, it's not his team right in many ways Eden Hazard felt like he was Mr. Chelsea yeah, yeah and he loved it like he wanted to be Mr. Chelsea yeah and like moving to Real in retrospect was obviously a bad decision for him but yeah huh? Real what are you yes. gonna do <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah there's a bit of that like yeah well what are you gonna do Real Madrid was like hey and he's like, sure why not you're not just going to not go to Real Madrid. That doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Especially since, yeah, it was starting to look like perhaps he was, I mean, yeah, I was going to say maybe on a little bit on the outer at Chelsea, but at the same point, not really. In the previous season, he was still doing awesome things. So, but, and he won yeah. you a Europa League and got you into yeah. the league in his last season I know I did not say I was going to say yeah, and then I was like no actually no it's the last season he was awesome still so yeah. uh, I don't think uh, Eden Hazard ever stopped giving his all for Chelsea no no definitely not like for a flair player that he is uh, he was like you know very much like I have to do everything I can for 
the Lions. Yeah. Whereas, like, yeah, there's def Chelsea has had a few players who you could say are mercurial. Like, they won't show up if they don't feel like it. Yeah, yeah. Does seem to be the way sometimes. But, you like, you have to balance them, right? And I think, like, Chelsea's always had the right systems to balance those sort of players in many ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like, for some reason, like, I feel like one of the potential mistakes you guys made last season with the selling of Abrams is I think he could have been one of those future talisman players. Like, he loves Chelsea, you know? Like, he just needs to have a coach who believes in him and lets him... Any player that Mourinho rates, I have to rate. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. It's like, Chelsea's always had the right division of players who are lazy but talented and players who are are hardworking but not as good. Yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. I mean, with um, Tammy Abraham, it was... A little bit. Like Michael Essien is like the classic. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. I was thinking of yeah, Tammy Abraham. Like the problem there was, well, it was the Lukaku problem. Them not wanting to have him sitting around where he get all might get huffy about playing number two behind or number three behind others. I was a bit surprised they did get rid of him because of his age and everything. Like at least alone or something, but obviously. Maybe they have a buyback clause for Abram. I can't remember. It is is um, possible. Anyways, so your highlight is the early part for Chelsea. We talked a little bit about it. For me, from a footballing perspective, obviously Ronaldo scoring on uh, in his first game back was incredible. Yeah, definitely loved that. But one of the big thing, when Manchester United have a bad season, I'm able to enjoy football for the sake of football. Like, I don't have to worry about being a United fan. Yeah. That season, like, we're not getting relegated, right? So, yeah. So, obviously, United's season was a huge disappointment. Yeah. Especially since there seem to be so many mistakes that could have been avoided. The big highlight for me is seeing a bunch of the newer teams coming up and doing well, which, like, I really enjoyed watching Crystal Palace, as I mentioned uh, to you before the start of the podcast. I think they did a really really interesting team. Um, We obviously followed uh, Uncle Mo with our Mo cast and Mo, Mo News. Yeah. And I think, uh, like, the fact that he ended the season with Roma's first European trophy and all yeah. that, like, we almost couldn't pl- have planned that better. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, it was very good. I, I'm going to claim that that happened because of us. That's We're right. Uncle Mo's good luck charm. I think that's very fair. It's interesting that I think all three of us, you, me, and our orange-haired fan... I have all had Mourinho as a manager of our club, with all very different opinions on their time as manager. Yeah, that is uh, interesting, yes. So I feel our um, opinions of the time at our respective clubs are a little closer. So. Yeah. Uh, you, had to, you guys had Mourinho twice, so... Yeah. I was happy with both times. How it goes sometimes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the... Um, so that was my footballing highlight, um, and I think 
the, the team that I really enjoyed was Crystal Palace. Uh, like I said, Crystal Palace with the whole, they've changed over a bunch of their players. And like, I think Connor Gallagher had an incredible season. Oh, yes. One of my players of the season, just the team he had and what he did with, for that team. I think we spoke in our previous podcast. I, my manager of the season is Eddie Howe for what he's done at Newcastle. That was a very interesting team to watch as well, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. No, I think, yeah, Newcastle did very well. Um, especially since, you know, the, the, the transfer win- January transfer window, they obviously you know, made an outstanding purchase taking wood from Burnley. Um, yeah. And, and, but, yeah, I think, obviously, they did well in the transfer market there in, in general, and... Yeah, the season just completely turned around, which was amazing. You know, if you think about it, that they were dead last coming out of December, second to last. We had looking... thought they were already relegated. Yeah, no. As I say, they were looking like that. That was it. They were done. Off to the championship, rebuild there, and come back in a year later. That nope, they were like, we're going to finish eleventh. Thank you. Which is just crazy. Yeah. So, like, one of the most... It's up there with one of the greatest, great escapes, but it's not quite as good because we know how they did it. Like, it wasn't yeah. possible without the new incoming money and all that sort yeah, of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. They, it was a great escape, but you say it wasn't the greatest because they had money and it happened because the transfer win- their January transfer window, they did well, right. And they, they made sure they got players that were going to... Um, we're going to help in the the immediate future. Could help if things the plans didn't go right, and but and still would be good next season, even if it, things went right. Like it's not going to be a. You know, I don't think any of their signings were such that they'll be obsolete come this next transfer window. And yeah, all of them clearly helped. The only thing that I'll point out is Odi Howe in many ways was playing with what Americans like to call house money, where there's no expectations. We yeah. thought he was relegated. Nobody, there's no pressure. Uh, that being said, he did some incredible things, like what he managed to get out of uh, Joel Linton. Like, Joel Linton is now potentially somebody who's going to be in Brazil's World Cup squad th- later this year um, yeah. at Qatar. Versus, like, you and I would probably laugh off that, that suggestion. Buff, you know, last year yeah before Eddie Howe moved to Newcastle players and it's like so that was definitely a plus for me as well um but Crystal Palace and Newcastle weren't the only interesting teams I think the season before this the to me the most interesting team to watch was West Ham like David Moyes' West Ham with especially Mm. when they had Lingard in the team Despite not having that sort of attacking threat in their midfield, um, though Jack Bowen had a very good season, it's interesting to me what Moyes managed to do with West Ham this season. I think he's had another very credible season. What I like about David Moyes now is he's added this level of flexibility to his game. Like, he's genuinely leveled up as a manager. Like, I don't... Like, I've always had him on in my head as a guy who specializes in making sure teams don't get relegated and doesn't think about trying to get, or at least at his time at Everton, he didn't feel like a manager who thought too much about uh, getting his team over the top. They, uh, he was just like, okay, 
Uh, for Everton, it's good enough that we're, uh, you know, don't get relegated. And probably yeah. that was fine. And, like, once he came, like, you know, after having a few beatdowns, like, he was at West Ham before. You know, this is not his first spell there. Yeah. It looked like his career had finished and everything, and he just basically uh, worked hard, l- changed his game, studied, like, did all the things. And, like, he's one of the most um, flexible managers in the league right now. Like, right now, I think um, uh, if another potentially bigger club were to look like if Eddie Howe has a poor start at Newcastle next season, they could do much worse than pick David Moyes as a replacement. Yeah. Like, that's the sort of... Like, I don't think he's going to, like, a club like Real Madrid, for example. Like, let's just... (laughs) I'm not saying that. But he's not... Or even maybe... Even though he was at United before i don't think he's going back there mm. i think that bridge has burnt but like you know he could potentially go to a club like spurs once conte leaves because we all know conte is probably not staying at spurs long term no it's not long term um not long term spurs thing no yeah i mean i think spurs are giving him the right tools to succeed so i think he will succeed at spurs in the short to medium term um, but he's yeah. It's a that is the project is a is a now thing, um, which I think is a, a big difference to say Arsenal with Arteta, which is a is a long term thing, and they're going to start Arsenal with Arteta. They have if they get a bad start next season, and it looks like they might finish outside the top ten with the yeah, you know, and that can happen to any club. Yeah, that's you know David Moyes is not a bad manager to bring in. To mm. like steady the ship, and yeah. then I think it had to be going pretty bad for them. I I get the feeling that with Arsenal that they may stick with Ateta for a while. They seem to be trying to build a team for him, but yeah, potentially. And I I do think that maybe at this point, uh, with all due respect to Arsenal, maybe David Moyes wouldn't want to go there because mm. the West Ham seem a bit more stable. Yeah, they do seem more stable. Or even potentially replacing Brendan Rodgers at Leicester. Yeah, yeah. That could be a good if option. Brendan Rodgers, like, like it would be un- greatly unfair to Brendan Rodgers. I think Leicester's squad were very injury ravaged. Yeah. Last season, if he needs the depth, there's nothing wrong with the first 12, 13 players. He can obviously improve, but Leicester like desperately need to add like good role players in that team yeah yeah they need the yeah the squad players the depth the the people who are rotating in and out and yeah and will give it their all you know yeah. when they have the opportunity yeah exactly like a good squad player someone who's there knows they're there for the team they're on there that's 100 percent there but otherwise you know they may be sitting on the bench but when they get on have to sub on they're giving it all and they're they're working hard and training and showing you know, and and getting knowing their roles and knowing what needs to be to be done if they are getting on the field and obviously pushing for the place themselves so if they they can start and perform the role of the starter well as well. Yeah, and like the key thing is they don't make waves when they're not starting. Like they yeah. know that what their role in the team is. And 
I've had this. I've heard this from Tifa. One of the interesting ideas they had is potentially football, especially in the Premier League, is moving to an era of specialization. Yeah. Can't remember which player they were talking about. Like they base could have been Arsenal, but they bought a player, and the whole point is like he might only play like 20 odd games and he's going to probably be in the bench for most of the season but they spent like 30 odd million for him but that's what makes sense if it's like a tweak you know that your team needs yeah. might have been city, one of the players that they look to buy like you know for a get for a team like city like having a player who's going to come off the bench and not like even erling holland if he's not going to play every game you don't need a number nine for every game might be on the bench for like 15, 16 games, this, uh, Premier League games, I'm meaning. Yeah, yeah. Especially as he's learning the league. Yeah, exactly. It's fully possible that he'll he'll start a few, he'll be on the bench for a few and come on and yeah, that get rotated like it through a lot. could very much be a horses for courses yeah. situation for them. Yeah. But is it worth it for City to spend that if that means they're... I think with... Ireland and City, like it's clearly leveling City up, and so yeah, yeah. It's, it's clearly worth it. Like he, say, he still may not start, but none of their stars start every game. Like you say, yeah. De Bruyne was I think twenty five games. Point out that um, yeah, the rest of them, you know, twenty four, twenty three, twenty six. Like it's they're not starting, you know, they're starting what well, that's yeah. about three quarters of the game of the or the Premier League games. Like that's yeah. And these are their players. They're yeah, it's brought not for Holland that they were talking million, about because Holland was about fifty million. But there yeah. was a player who was bought by a, a, a Premier League side who I can't recall. It's one of the big mm. clubs because nobody has money like that no, to no, exactly. leave. And that's why I'm thinking it was City that they were talking about. Yeah, I'm trying but to. Like, I remember listening to the same podcast actually. I can't remember. Yeah, and they were basically like, like they've spent a player like, and he's clearly going to be a bench player. He's not going to start. Yeah, for the club, and he's a good player, but yeah, he's not a starter. Uh, what does this mean for the future of the league? Because yeah, yeah once Guardiola does something, it's gonna impact. Yeah, everybody the rest does that. I mean, so if Guardiola does something, I think they said in one of the later ones, Tifo was like, Guardiola does something, and you eventually see it in the Sunday leagues, the same thing. So yeah, but I remember them also pointing out like it's interesting, but yeah, I think. Maybe in the same one where they were talking about there's more specialization and and how in transfers and t- picking players like we need this player to fill this thing, but at the same time there's sort of less specialized or less emphasis on the actual structure in the on the field and this comes into the phase you know the four phases philosophy in that Guardiola and um, Klopp as well. Uh, less interested in what formation they're playing like it's not a well a, a rigid formation for the whole game it's like in this game state we need this formation people need to, well, people need to get into these positions so it may you know the defensive formation may look more like a 4-4-2 and then as they go through transition through um to attacking it becomes a a, a 3-5 3-5-2 whatever it might be um yeah. or, or differently you know um it doesn't matter, you know, the, the numbers in the structure don't matter. It's the, this player plays here in this way, and 
vets yeah. with a specialization coming in. Who are the good in? players in the yeah. half spaces during transition? Who are the good yeah. players in the uh, in the channels when you've got the ball? Like, the, yeah. yeah, that's what you're needing. You don't look at a, this guy's a striker. You're like, this guy's good at the channels when we're... Yeah. When we don't have the ball, because he can cover multiple, yeah. you know, he can cover and, two people at once. Yeah. You know, and when how he's he defending. and how he transitions through from defending to, you know, transition, getting the ball to attacking and back again, and and yeah. really understanding how they're playing, how they can like, how they can pick up Trent, the like Trent is the textbook example, right? He's an ex- he's incredible at being at the uh, basically shoring up the channels because he basically becomes a right to central midfielder but that just means like Salah has this like once the transition happens and Liverpool get the ball like Salah very quickly will get the ball on his end right like that's just how it works with the and if you know that that's how the transition works then but this also means like he he's not as good on the defensive and he's good once the team are defending the other team has the ball phase because he yeah. goes back and covers the right back but he's not as good in that transition to defense yeah because he's effectively playing as a right midfielder at that point it's not and like i think liverpool are good at covering that cuz van dyke goes in and you know protects his channel on on the transition to defense. Yeah. Because he can, like, protect that channel, but also protect the half space in the center because, you know, he's Van Dyke and he's incredible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he's basically that level of uh, uh, player. Like, once he plays for England, it's very obvious that, yeah, he can't do that. England can't expect him to play that way for uh, them because they don't have Van Dyke. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like that's just it. Like that's the, or they don't have a defender like Van Dyke who yeah, yeah. can, who like this is why Kyle Walker is the natural right back for England. Mm. Like, is he as good a player as uh, Trent is uh, in the Premier League? No, he's not as good for City as as like Trent is for Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? but that's. But he's gonna be better in England's system. But he, yeah, exactly. He works better in the the system that England plays. So, and like in many ways, Trent's a unicorn, right? Like Liverpool have a bunch of unicorns in their team that like makes is what makes them effective at uh, in the Premier League. Makes them difficult to for a lot of the uh, Premier League teams to play against. But also makes them kind of predictable as the way yeah, Carla and Kalodi put it and Chalodi yeah. put it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the, yeah. You know how they're going to play by just the fact that they the players that they have and they do it really well but they do the same thing each time. So. Yeah. Well and to be fair, they don't have to do anything different. Like okay, like Liverpool don't have a team that's as in the league that's as good as they are, uh, or better, significantly better than they are. Like West Ham have to play differently to a team that's better against a team that's better than them, yeah. and and a team that's uh, and they will play differently uh, when they're playing a team that's worse than them. And also, who's available in the team and how to, you know, mishmash the squad. Yeah. At that point, like, uh, unlike for example, someone like. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't do that. 
you know, he plays the quote unquote United way whenever <laughs> he's doing stuff to his detriment yeah. in a lot of times. Yeah, yeah. It's in a way it's good that for David Moyes that he's not at United. Like it, United took a bunch of managers and like mistakes before they finally accepted they need to kind of commit to a manager's style or particular um you know philosophy of a general manager like the fact that they didn't have a general manager until last season like that just shows how much of a yeah like, you know, Mickey Mouse operation <laughs> United are yeah yeah <laughs> basically that's the they never needed one while Fergie was there taking them a very long time I think United to yeah stop thinking that they can just magically be back to the glory days I think quite rightfully, people will just say that United's man- uh, manager uh, transfer policy for a long time under Woodward was probably just buy whoever is famous and will please the fans and sell t- you know, sell t-shirts and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's interesting that because uh, Tifo have yeah. said that they think Who do the fans want Woodward buy him, buy him. because He'll he's learned made a lot of mistakes at Manchester United. And seem to have sort of learned from them. He could be a good general manager for another team. Like, because he would increase their revenue and things like that. Mm. Because he's very good at those things. Yeah, that would make sense. And he now knows how to delegate responsibility. Like, maybe not a general manager. Maybe like a president or a CEO. Something, yeah. But, yeah. As you say, he's learned from his mistakes, so... It means it, it's he's likely to be able to add even more yeah. value because he'll he can see you know he already knows what not to do and parts of the yeah, bits I mean, that um, can really yeah, add value. Also, be typical that United do very uh, well, somebody so. else does crap at United and then like you know another club gets the best out of them. Like that would like it would be like peak United for that. For it to be like Woodward, for it to be Wood, uh, you know, Woodward, who leads to that happening, and I, just the funniness of it, like, makes almost makes me want it to happen. It would be very funny, and I think I'm with you. Make it happen. Make it so. Uh, so, who would you say is your player of the year? I guess yeah, it's Mohamed Salah. Um, though, as I was saying before the podcast, uh, I like Son. Son did some really wonderful things. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, the one stat that stands out to me is that both Son and Salah saw, scored the same amount of goals, um, 23 goals each, but Son doesn't take the penalties, which, you know, that just says that, quote-unquote, as, as Tifo said, you know, he scored more real goals. Although all the goals are clearly real goals and all count the same, but Son scored more quote unquote real goals, um, which makes him one of those bitter. things, right? But, yeah, like people don't real like people who look at Andy Cole's record don't realize that he has scored like he had a season where he scored like thirty odd goal, thirty five goals for Newcastle in the pre, uh, in the Premiership. Um, and he didn't take any penalties. Yeah, that's crazy when you think about it. And, like, he's got 
Um, he's got the third highest number of goals still in Premiership history. And once again, he's not a penalty taker. Yeah. So. Amazing. And he's done well at almost every team he's played for, like worked yeah. multiple strike partners and whatnot. So there's a argument to be like, imagine how many goals he would probably be very close to Alan Shearer's record, you know, and or Wayne to Wayne Rooney if he if he had actually taken penalties as well, yeah, penalties as well. And it's interesting to me in the top three goal scorers uh, for the Premier League all time, we've got two player like a. Two of those players have played for both Newcastle and Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. So I think I agree with you that I think uh, Mohamed Salah should be Premier League Player of the yeah. Season. But I do have to give a small shout out, I think, to um, to um, Connor Gallagher. I think he did an incredible, and Jack Bowen. I think they both did incredible jobs at. Yeah. You know, teams that are not as well resourced as those, you know, Liverpool, Manchester City, and done an incredible job for them. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what they do next season. Uh, yeah. And I'm definitely like both Crystal Palace, uh, West Ham, and West Ham, depending on how their off seasons go, could once again be up there amongst the most interesting teams to watch. Yes. Yeah, I think I think yeah. It's going to be interesting, um, especially West Ham. I think um, could have a very good season next year. They've been, I mean, they've had a good last few seasons where they've, you know, pretty much been pretty close to to breaking into uh, even the you know, the top four and being a a strong contender there. And I don't think it's going to take too much for that to um, become a bit of a reality as well. They got a good yeah. strong side. The squad's good, like. It's just been putting it all together, I think. Maybe just one or two player players away, but not like, a lot. It might be something for another video, but I had a conversation with my cousins about who we thought was going to be top four next season. So obviously Liverpool City. Yeah. Yeah. I think with Conte, uh, I was like, I have to uh, give Spurs. Either they'll be fourth or third, in my mm. opinion, just because they have Conte and they they're backing Conte with the sort of players he likes. Yeah. No, they're definitely going to be a a, a genuine contender next year. Um, the only reason I didn't pick Chelsea as my projected top four is because I you guys still have to rebuild your entire defense. Yeah, we really do. Like, there's like you. Good a managers Tuchel might be, good players you have, you have lost all your starting defenders. And I think Mendy is also suffering from some uh, confidence issues after AFCON. Yeah, it does look that way. Um, yeah, so yeah, I would agree with you that depending on the transfer window, but even with a good transfer window, it's still It'll going to... It'll take time for, still take time to for that. Yeah, for the, it's a defense. Like it's, yeah. it's going to be a bit of a, a worry... Um, going into the first part of next next season. Yeah, I'm not suggesting like the um that Chelsea won't be in the top six or anything like that. You know, no. like and Chelsea might even qualify for the Champions League by winning a Europa League next season just because they can do those things. 
Yeah. Yeah. We're in the Champions League next year. It'll be the year after you're talking about. Or Or you think we're going to drop out at the the group stage of the Champions League? Potentially, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the thing, right? You don't have a defense. It's really hard for me to see where it's what uh, where it's coming from. Yeah, it is going to be hard at the moment until we've until we know what our defense is actually is. Um, Yeah, it it's going to be. Problematic, and anything could happen. Yeah. So that's literally my only. Like, I think you'll be higher than United. So that's. <laughs> let's just put yeah, that yeah. out there. I'm not being a homer. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh, I definitely think you're gonna be higher than United, but that's no like that's not a comfort to you. I don't think. <laughs> no. I don't know if that's really going to help a lot, but yeah. Um, so, uh, but I do think, um, like, the team that could be gunning for your position in the top five, uh, in, like, to try and... Cause, but I don't think they'll make the top four is um, West Ham. I do think um, Leicester might be a threat. But I don't think they'll finish top four. Because that's again, I don't. I need to see more investment in that squad. Yeah, yeah. And you, they don't have Europe next season, so maybe. Yeah, well, there there is that, I guess. I was saying that's it. I still don't really see it um, coming out that way. So. Yeah. I think Chelsea sixth is the lowest I see them finish. Yeah. Though I'd feel a bit disappointed that low, but I can see why it might might happen. Yeah, I it's difficult to next season. There's a bunch of complications for Chelsea on top of the complications every other team has, which is like you know, World Cup, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, Chelsea has a bunch of players who will be playing at the World Cup, uh, and there might be more than a few injuries as well, uh, but. Injuries, if we assume injuries affect everyone evenly, so it's like Chelsea is okay because nobody's super vital. United, if Ronaldo gets injured next season at the World Cup, yeah, we might not finish top six or top seven. Like, I'm yeah. not joking, like, that's no, a no. legitimate possibility. Yes, definitely. If he's especially if he's out for multiple, multiple games, yeah, that could be quite. Worrying for United. Whereas I think if Spurs, unless they lose both Son and Kane, and even if yeah. they did lose both of them, they have enough good players in that squad for Conte to, you know, adjust things and yeah, get you know get them through. Because Conte is good at like mid-season adjustments and like those uh, Juve teams. There are times when it looked like they were basically done for, and you know. They came back and won the season because, you know, Conte figured something out. Conte, yeah, Conte did Conte things. He was like, yeah, uh, where's where do I make the changes? Here, 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 do this, do it like this. Here we go, done. Pretty much. So yeah, exactly like you say, Conte did Conte things, and like we know he can do those things. So this is where, well, 
Ten Hag may be able to do those things. I don't know if he's got the squad to do those things at United at the moment. Yeah, it'd be one thing and another. Um, another thing to watch through the transfer window and see who United can get. Which... Right. There's just so many needs in that United team. Mm. Like, even, like, it's the, like, when we were, when the NFL draft was happening, like yeah, the Houston Texans, like what are their needs? It's like everybody, every yeah. position, every position. And like for somehow the opposite was the Cincinnati Bengals because they got a bunch of linesmen in their like O line people in their free agency, like we all thought they should. Uh, so basically, when it came their turn to draft number thirty one, because they were the second best team. Mm-hmm. in the season, it was like, oh, we can just draft the best player because, you know, we don't have a need right yeah. now. Yeah, just who's who's left that's the best. That one, okay. Like, because I've been thinking a bit about, like, because uh, you, were, I don't know, uh, as you know, I, am very, I very much enjoy looking at analytics and sport. And yeah. That's one of my um, big um, interests. So, like, it's occurred to me that, like, basically the early Moneyball era mm-hmm. and the, the... During the early Moneyball era, the whole point was finding the uh finding the value in the market because of things that are undervalued and basically you're looking at data to show truths that isn't obvious to everybody yeah and like and it just always plays out and because baseball has so much data you can always like you know the, the it's statistically significant you have enough statistical data that you can trust it yeah like for example it's not like that in cricket because even the most ardent cricket um, analytics person goes, look, if something is your conventional wisdom disagrees with the data, we have to respect that because we have so little data. Like we play relatively far less cricket games than baseball games are played. Yeah, yeah. Like there are more baseball games played in a season than there are test matches ever have been yes, played. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. So, the like this is you're dealing with different levels of data to figure it out. Now, like in American sport, like especially football uh, analytics, people are talking about it. it. The value is no longer in following the data because everybody follows data. It's the guy who knows when to go against the data that's right, valuable. Yeah. yeah. And like the guy who's consistently correct about when to ignore the data, like they know when to separate the macro from the micro. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and the and that they're in that second phase, uh, and like uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, uh, what uh, how that evolves because they have openly said that they're they're very much influenced by cricket. Because especially test cricket, because they call test cricket the statistics monster, like the analytics monster. They just it's there's not enough data, and there's so many different ways it can change. Mm-hmm. 
in game states because it's over five days and yeah, conditions yeah. change. Like game states are different every day, and like actually, and you've got the big thing is the changing conditions over that time period as well. Like that, obviously, each game, the conditions, the field of play conditions, and can't be the same. They'll always be slightly different, and that will impact on how everything goes. So. Yeah, you don't even have uh, the data set having a, a even keel. Like it, every game is is different and a different set of underlying conditions to go against it. So, like, there's two kinds of quote unquote wisdom that people talk about. There's the rational knowledge, like you experiment and you learn and you look, observe things, and you get that, mm. um, get results from that. And there's the metis knowledge where like there's traditions that people follow because they know in their bones that that's the right way to do things yeah so like the famous example people use is like when nobles tried to redo how they planted forests in the black planted trees in the black forest to get more lumber out of it so they grew them more spaced out exactly correct so they could maximize the number of trees and it ended disastrously yeah, but it was scientific and rational with based on the knowledge they had. Yeah. But yeah, you know, at the end of the day, like there's a reason why people traditionally did things the way they did. Yeah. And like I think to fully under to get the value out of like the data, you have to kind of respect why the conventional wisdom is what it is and see where it may or you know to understand where or where where or where it might not apply and yeah. then also like when to stop ignoring the, like it makes you better at knowing when to ignore the data yeah yeah you got to have that holistic view and you got to know but the holistic yeah. view's got to be grounded in something as you say and it's the the traditions of this is the traditional wisdom you know you do it this way but if you know why it's done that way and what is the the things that fed into it then you know it generally comes down I, to the you know the juxtaposition of those two types of wisdom is where there is too many variables and therefore the data is not going to give you the you know analyzing the data is not going to give you the true picture really even though you may think it does so when you know where that happens where are those those key points that's when you know like actually at this point the data is not going to give me the information I want. It's potentially even going to give me the wrong information. So I need to look elsewhere yeah. or look at a bigger picture. It's the thing, right? Like one of the things with cricket is we're apply like cricket has a lot of metis because we where this sort of assumed generational knowledge is useful is things like climate and how it affects how the land works, so how yeah. the power pitch will react to the climate. Like, we know so many stories of like village cricket teams where a better team comes to play them, but the captain knows, ooh, I think there's going to be a bit of a fog and we're going to get really good. Like, for example, if this was a T20 game, 90, if you follow the data, you win the toss, you think you, you, bowl, uh, you bowl first. Um, yeah. 99% of the time and 1% of the time you think about it and then you bowl first. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the conventional wisdom and that's what you should always do in a yeah. T20 game. Um, but the, cause the statistical advantage, but like, you know, there is a, 
thing. But if you know that there's a captain who thinks about this fog thing, uh, it's because there's like this really interesting, like, because this was used as a like a exercise, like an imaginary thought exercise in white ball analytics. One of the uh, the blogs I followed. This guy is now the um, uh, Kolkata Knight Riders analytics guy. All right. So yeah. he stopped writing articles because he's you know his <laughs> hobby became his job. <laughs> That's really nice. So, but he's left a lot of his databases for people to look at because he was okay. interested in saying like what what can you guys work out that yeah I'm interested to see what you know, people think about yeah. these things. Um, now, one of the things he was saying is like in Test cricket. That whole knowing about this last minute thing, like, you know, about the weather, that might, uh, the percentage advantage it gives you might be 40%. It's not necessarily more enough to overcome the advantage of batting second in a T20 game, mm. because that's almost like a 60 to, to at some point, like 80% win rate. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. that it gives you. Yes. And also, like uh, in the uh, in an example where the other team is clearly better than you are, you need more than that to overcome the uh, uh, you know, you need uh, more than that to overcome more than those odds to overcome what the other what the other team can do to you. Yeah, yeah. So the um, so cricket, there's a. Uh, the value you get from Metis, you have to kind of understand that that doesn't necessarily apply to white ball cricket. Yeah. Because the the you know the the data advantages are different. Yeah, yeah. Like in test matches, it's almost the opposite of of uh, T20s, right? Like you always you bat first, or and yeah. then you think about it, but then you bat first. Yeah, yeah. Unless there's like incredibly good bowling conditions, and like that is the local knowledge. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You bat first unless because there's, yeah, it's basically bashing you on the head. The weather's bashing you on the head to say, this is a a bowling day. Yeah, like one of the famous examples he uses, Alistair Cook, uh, was at the Adelaide Oval, and I think it was a drawn series still in Australia. Mm -hmm. And he won the toss at the Adelaide Oval, and he bowled, had a bowl. Yeah. And you know Australia scored, I think, five hundred plus. Uh, Ian Chappell's big thing is Adelaide Oval definitely is a pitch where you bat, f- where you bat first. And I yeah. think Alistair Cook wasn't wrong. He figured there was something happening, and the um, and Jimmy Anderson uh, was able to swing the ball and get some early wickets. But the thing was, like, it wasn't enough to overcome the fact that. It is such a flat pitch that once that advantage is lost with the um, Kookaburra ball, which is not the Duke's ball, yeah, you're gonna because the Duke's ball swings more early on. The reason, sorry, the Kookaburra ball, sorry, swings more early on, but it loses the swing much quicker. Yeah, yeah. Whereas the Duke's ball maintains its condition for longer, so it doesn't sw- actually swing as much as the Kookaburra ball, which is like you know. Uh. What, yeah, one of those things that you, you that you people don't really think about. They're just like, oh, Duke's swing. But yeah, no, yeah. why does it swing? How does it swing? Like you'll notice that a lot of 
Jimmy Anderson's wickets come later on in the innings because he wait he's patient about waiting. Yeah. And like you know, he's always clever and knows when to yeah, he's uh know knows exactly when to, where to target the batsman for maximizing uncertainty. Yeah, exactly. Um they um and in like test cricket, like that was the one like basically Alistair Cook had this thing of going like I think we can win by over by getting early wickets and getting early wickets increases your chances to win. Let's just for example say thirty percent. But if we know historically the Adelaide Oval's batting advantage, batting first advantage is something like sixty percent of the time team batting first wins. Yeah. And you know you're not going to overcome that advantage with just no, no. thirty percent. Like you got to like, and I don't think cricket play, uh, cricket captains think like that, right? Like, no. and not everybody can think like that. No, I guess in that case, there's all right. There's the opposite you have to um, consider as well. Like, what is the odds that our batting lineup will survive through to to get to the good um, batting conditions? Or can we, yeah. you know, because if you're looking and going, oh, the weather conditions are such that there's something here, there's going to be some swing, there's going to be early wickets. I know most captains don't wouldn't think of that. They think, oh, hey, how many wickets do we think we can realistically get? Can we make advantages and get enough through the, the opposition batting lineup to then drive it home? And it's, you know, you've got some targets, you know, well, to make this work, we need to get, in the first hour, we need to get this many wickets, the second hour, this many wickets. And, onwards but there is a flip to that of well if we you know it's adelaide it's it's a bat first sort of thing it's kind of fl- it flattens out it's no matter what you're going to get good batting you've still got to make it through to that batting bit so i guess there's having faith or having knowledge in your batting lineup you've you know if you've got a, a bit of a fragile batting lineup then maybe it's better to try and roll the dice and be like, well, maybe we can get far enough through the opposition's batting lineup that we get into the bits that are frail for them. And and yeah. that advantage isn't as big as opposed to us getting rolled, not putting a lot on the board, and then the opposition getting free reign of the best batting conditions. Um, yeah. yeah. So you've got to think, and that's perhaps where the data, you know, say that's the bits where the data isn't as... um good at pointing that out and you do need a bit of the can only give you the percentages and numbers at the end of the day you got to apply it to your situation yeah like yeah you know if you flip a coin it's going to be 50 50 but if you decide to base every decision on the result of a coin flip you know (laughs) things are going to go badly you can't just you know there are going to be some decisions you don't need to flip a coin on yeah exactly even if you're not sure Yes, no, the the coin flip for anything that you consider to be a 50-50 choice, even if you just did it on anything you consider to be a 50-50 choice, um, it's still going to go bad for you. Yeah. And, like, this is where, like, learning data is a tool. Like, learning yeah. when to apply the tool is what's going to make you be a successful like 21st century captain and it's almost there with cricket i mm-hmm. think yeah yeah like i can 
It's interesting to me that, like, Brendan McCullum has basically told England, like, look, there's a line you need to cross. It's the, it's the audacity line, like, where you've taken the attackingness too far. And you need to cross that line while the, the opposition don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's where you can steal wins. Because he's taken the whole, this is, you're playing in a tournament format. Stealing yeah. wins will get you. And it's like... the. I don't think any other coach is doing that to a certain degree. Gary Stead it was doing that with yeah. uh, with New Zealand, but not as much as Brendan McCullum. Yeah, well, that's not a surprise as well, given it's Brendan McCullum. Like that's that was almost his captaincy as well. Like for Brendan McCullum, the way he because th- cricket players are human, right? Like. Yeah. It's one of those things where, in like the, the the tide hasn't quite changed yet for um, the way we look at the game. Like one of my big bugbears is why do um, openers immediately after the um, immediately after the power play is over slow down and try to play a longer innings and like sort of try to become an anchor? Yeah. And I'm just like, well, the um, the main reason for that is teams know, even though uh, on average, uh, the a T20 game has at most six, seven wickets lost. The moment you lose two or three wickets, and tailenders may have to bat, like people lower down the order, feel pressured into playing defensively. Yeah. Well, it's one of those things, you know, if you're getting lots of wickets lost, everybody feels a bit more defensive, so that becomes the mindset. Even if it's still a good batting wicket and there's runs to be had and you just got to, you know, it's, it's a confidence the whole, You can get, you're going to get, uh, uh, you can get criticised for, you're going to get criticised for not, playing a bit defensively for an over to after having lost a few wickets mm. rather than you're not going to get criticized for going why didn't you just keep attacking like that's what you should keep doing like you know and like it's fair enough that they don't want to like this is their living right they don't want to uh they don't yeah. want to lose their job and like you know managers are pressured into dropping them and that sort of thing if yeah, yeah. they can help exactly there is other factors in play as well, as you say, and I think it's just human nature as well to be like, well, things are going badly. We need to, we need to consolidate first and and find a, an even even it out first, and then we'll we'll rebuild and we'll get back into the game. And but let's just you know stop the problems that are happening now first, and then move on to the next problem. But, like, you know, my absolute bugbear is, like, when the openers have not lost a wicket and they still slow down Yeah. after. <laughs> well, that's that's back to traditional wisdom, right? Which is, right. oh, the power play's over, oh, the field's a bit more spread, there's not as many, you can't be as a, aggressive because it's more risky to do it. So now we need to, to play more conventional cricket, and that means being more defensive and being a bit slower in your run rate. But... Like, especially white ball cricket these days, like, the fielding restrictions don't go crazy. Like, it doesn't go from 
I think it goes two to three to four or something like that. Like it's it's, yeah. it's a slow progression out. Like it's power plays over. It's only one extra player out in the in the deep. Like surely this that still means plenty of spaces to hit into. Also, like you're playing T twenty, you're not dealing with uh you don't yeah. care about what's where the fielders are. You're hitting it where there should be no fielders. Yeah, where the fielders can't be. On the other side of the yeah. fence. It is over the fence. Look, the safest shot is uh, uh, safest shot is out of the ground. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> you can't get out if you hit it out of the ground. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. And like, like, at, if you're a team, like for example, like you, know, your first batter gets out on like the seventh or eighth over and you've got a player like Andre Russell in your team. Why aren't you sending Andre Russell out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the guy who's gonna basically go at 250, even if he gets a super quick fire, 30, 40 runs, you know, other people can bat at the death too. You, you can send up you can send a few of your like apparently this is one of the reasons why people don't like sending up pinch hitters uh, after the power play to keep the run rate going because you know the, the, even though you've only lost a you know like someone like Sunil Nareen down the order the fact that it looks like oh you've only got two or three batters uh uh you know you've only got like you know uh, you've already lost three or four wickets, makes them nervous. Even though two of those wickets might have been bowlers, yeah, you sent down. You yeah, know? sent out just to have a bit of a whack, and they got yeah, a quick fire, twenty odd, and then got out and a couple of overs. Like, oh, we're losing wickets. So, you know, really, you're losing wickets that you potentially were never going to use. So, good use of your resources. They got some extra runs, and you still got your good batters anyway. So. Like as long as they come at a strike rate that's higher than it would take for a um uh take for one of your uh quote unquote specialist batsmen mm. to score runs at, that's all that matters, right? Like yeah. maybe this is just a bit where the traditional wisdom hasn't well the data driven wisdom hasn't hasn't displaced enough of the traditional wisdom yet to to change how things and T Twenty, it's changing okay. a lot. Like, and I wouldn't be surprised if things like that might come into it in the not too different. You know, somebody might try it, but it it needs a team to try it and for it to work. Then it will. Then the the meta will change, right? And suddenly, every all teams will be doing that. I feel like every season, one team does it and it works like you they'll have Sunil Nareen just doing Sunil Nareen things because Sunil Nareen does not give a crap about his wicket no he's kind of like when you've promoted me up the order you're not there for me you're not expecting me to score a century you want me to score 20 off eight balls yeah it's my job to throw the bowler off his rhythm and like destroy his game after that like you know batsmen can do batsman things that's not my concern anymore (laughs) I think the thing is that still conventional wisdom is to to conserve as much wickets as possible. And I think I think we've said it before. Like in T20, if you've not on your ninth wicket at on the twentieth well, on the last ball of the twenty third, especially when setting a target, yeah. Like especially you when you're setting a target, like what are you doing? Yeah. Like chase 
completely different. You're using resources to fit the situation, and you have yeah. to follow the game state. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. completely understand why that is not a thing when you're chasing. Yeah, but and it makes still, sense. Like, like you yeah. know exactly the right amount of risk to take when you're chasing. Yeah, you know, like oh, we're this far behind. There's no point losing. We may as well go for it. Like that's the right attitude to have. Yeah. when you're chasing a big score or chasing a score and you're behind the required rate but yeah, yeah. like you know when you're setting a total what have you got to lose man yeah. like you're already very unlikely to win so you have to take risks yeah and you may as well it's not even just taking risks it's using all your resources i mean like we have yeah. this many um people who do things so yeah why not promote some bowlers up you know, with wickets coming out of the end of the power play to go and pitch into bits, you know? Even if it's just a... Even if they don't get a quick fire 20, even if it's only a couple, you know, a couple of boundaries and then they're out. Like, just enough to mess around with the boulder's line or, or thought process or anything is probably enough so that they... You know, just the fact that it's a bowler coming out and he's just going to have a wild swing at the ball probably enough to make the actual bowler bowling the ball be like, wait, I have to rethink what I'm doing in my game plans and oh, this is happening. And then the real batters come back out and the game plan's probably up in the air again and nobody knows what they're doing. And you've got, at least you've got a moment. You might, may only be half an over, maybe an over, but you get an advantage out of that and you can use that to get your thing. You know, whilst the, the bowling side's sorting out what they're doing, you know, You've got an opportunity, so especially if you've got a matchup related advantage, like yeah, you know, they've got a left arm spinner bowling, and then you just send Sunil Nareen or another, <laughs> you know, hard hitting lefty, yeah, yeah, into the uh, out there, like yeah, that's gonna that's gonna affect things with their planning. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the thing. Maybe that's still not, you know, become conventional overthrown the conventional wisdom for especially for batting first in, in T20s and maybe that's what's needed to to start pushing the statistics back to being favouring batting first and it's like actually playing with your lineup and playing, you know, making sure that you're using everything you can and disrupting the t- finding every advantage you can and creating those advantages as best you can um, to generate your 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 runs on the board so that you do have something to pressure you know scoreboard pressure to to put back on as you say there's plenty of advantage in batting second in a t20 there's say you know what the target is you know what the plan is you know where the risks are you know exactly yeah. you yeah you know you have all the information you need in yeah. batting first you have zero information so you've got zero information you've got to do something else to to try and 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 generate the chances you can. Try and control the things you can. So, yeah. Yeah. So hopefully exactly. It but it's just as this uh, interesting thing because, like, cricket is becoming so influential in the way people look at analytics. Like the two sports that seem to be very difficult for analytics to kind of fully understand is the uh, is NFL American football and uh cricket test cricket because uh, 
Yeah. Test cricket, it's obvious, like you said. It's it's even if it wasn't like you ch- the change in conditions, it's a monster just from the um yeah, the the number of days you're playing, like the chances that the conditions of your bowlers, just their physical just the, condition will be different. Or even just the mental the mental condition yeah. over yeah. that time changes as well. Like it's it's 100%. A fl- five days, that's a long time. Um, everybody's got to stay peak performance the whole time. That's that's takes a bit of doing. Um, so yeah, physical conditions change. Physical condition of the players change. Mental condition of the players change. And these, other than the environmental conditions, the physical and the mental conditions of the players can the 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 state of the game and where the game is and will have an impact on that as well. So you know depending on what's happening in the game, can have different impacts on different players in different ways. Yeah. So I'm not surprised that there's just not enough data because there's just way too many variables. It's also difficult for them to figure out what the algorithm should be to f- mm. for success. Yeah. You know? Because it varies so... The game state, you know, is so variable. And you can have draws. Yeah. And there's the thing, you know, when the draw was a good draw or a bad draw for the team. Like, was it a draw because they played well? And and you know, and and it just so happened that you know they, there was bad something bad happened at the beginning, and that may be environmental. You know, the first day may have been extremely um, bowler friendly, or maybe the other way around. And the last day it's been extremely bowler friendly because the pitch is broken yeah. up and stuff. But You've got such good batters that they can navigate even that horrible pitch condition where you know the ball's turning square or whatever, and they can still battle through for the end of the day and and keep the draw even if it was you know looking yeah. you know everything else says it shouldn't, but yeah yeah, but also like because of the way the tournament works a draw is like a dropped 10 points for both teams and like that's a strategic bit of knowledge like sometimes is it worthwhile for you to lose and like drop those points to prevent the other side from like would you there's going to be a time when teams are going to go for draws in games they should protect they could potentially go for wins because it cements their position on yeah. the table against yeah, yeah. the opposition. Yes. And that but that is, yeah. was always a thing. Yeah, it's always been a thing. <laughs> For a very, very long time. Yeah, so maybe it's not as big a deal as I'm thinking. No. Or as big a change as I'm thinking. I mean, you can go back to, was it mid, early 2000s? Stephen Fleming, you know... Doing pretty much exactly that. Of now, well, we can't. You know, we could either really try to win this or just bat slow. And and defensively, in a one of the tri series um, with Australia and Pakistan, Bangladesh, whoever it was, you know, they had a just batted slow on purpose. Didn't even try to win the match. The the ODI, but batted slowly so the other teams. Net run rate was horrendous, so therefore they um they wouldn't make it to the final. That just uh, or might even been against Australia. So yeah, so that the Australians run rate in net run rate ended up being 
super low, so that they wouldn't make the final. It would be whoever else it was. This was standard. in the World Series, so yeah. what had happened is this was after New Zealand were obviously not going to win the game. Yeah, yeah. They decided not to go for the bonus points so that South Africa would get through. Yes. So they intentionally got less than enough to make the uh, to make the um, the, but the thing is, by guaranteeing South Africa got through, it also meant that they would get through. Like it guaranteed yeah. their pos- their position too. They would they didn't intentionally make South uh, Australia miss out. No, no, it was it was beneficial for them. Qualified. Yeah, yeah. It was about yeah. It was more how they were. Um, Manipulating the tournament itself for the beneficial of New Zealand, which makes sense. Like, as I say, and it was after the game. Like, the better option was for to win the game, and yeah. after it became clear that that was very unlikely, um, by some miraculous um, divine intervention, basically, where they, be- uh, it was. Just, yeah. This was the yeah, better yeah. option. But that's yeah. just showing that... This was that's... the mo- option that was more likely to get your New Zealand to qualify. Yeah. Because then all South Africa needed was to get a bonus point, even if they lost in that in their next game, and it would be New Zealand versus South Africa in yeah. the final. Yeah, yeah. Because I think... Uh, South Africa had a more winning record against Australia. They needed to give South Africa more, a more winning record against Australia. Mm. Like some complicated thing. It was a complicated yeah. thing, yeah. That's why my memory of it was a bit poor. Yeah. Yeah. That was also the series Shane Warne announced himself. Yeah. So, as always, when we speak about football... We end our segment on the Mo Corner. Mo Corner. Mo Corners. So he ha- it looks like with Mauricio Pochettino leaving um, PSG, mm-hmm. that Jose Mourinho will be going to PSG. Ooh. Do you like this move, if only because of the popcorn potential? Oh, I mean, I thought the popcorn was. Flying well last year, but yeah, no, if Mourinho goes to PSG, dear God, that is going to be, I guess Mo Corner, Neymar. yeah, I guess Mo Corner continues next year if that happens, I mean, we can't not have it, <laughs> it's at PSG, like, that's just going to be um, so much fun. Oh yeah, I'm already looking forward to it. Um... But at this stage, it's still a rumor. Um, mm. If he goes to PSG, very likely he will be taking Tammy Abrams with him. <laughs> the new Michael Essien, that is <laughs> Tammy Abrams. <laughs> and that's not even a joke. No, <laughs> that will be what happens. Because, yeah, Michael Essien pretty much says that Jose Mourinho is my white dad. <laughs> it's... Uh, like it's this weird thing because like Jose Mourinho's got this attitude, you know, this reputation for being a real dickhead as a coach and like to try and beat the opposition. But the players who love, genuinely like him off the pitch, genuinely like him. Like they, 
fight, you know, uh, fire through walls for him, like Michael yeah. Essien, like towards the end of his career, like on one leg, broken knee, would pro- go through walls for Mourinho. Yeah, yeah. No, I think yeah, you're right. That's it. it there is a Mourinho, um, Mourinho influence, a factor that just goes into it that people just seem to want to follow him anywhere. Um, no matter what his um, reputation's like. Yeah. Absolutely. And then, so, we like he knows that winning the French league means nothing. Like for Chelsea, <laughs> uh, for PSG, they want to win the Champions League. Yeah. Um. So what happens there is, and like, this is like, he's a, he's a manager who's won the Champions League three times, I want to say. He's won it with um, Real. Um, um, he won it with uh, Porto, Real, and... Um, who's in what's And... Um, uh, Inter. Inter, yes. I was like, my head was going Juventus. I'm like, no, it's not Juventus. The other one, no, Inter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, three. There's one at three times. If you were to win it at four different clubs, that would be. Ooh, that's some CV. That is some like, CV. Like Klopp and Guardiola have still only won it at one club. Yeah. Ancelotti, you could almost say, is like a Champions League specialist at this point because he's yeah. won it almost at every club. Other than Chelsea, he's won it at every club he's been at. Chelsea and Everton aside. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, he was PSG manager too, wasn't he, Ancelotti? <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess it's for uh, Mourinho to show he's better then. He can win right. it with PSG. Uh, the manager who gets PSG into to win the Champions League is gonna be legendary, right? Like yeah. that's a thing. Like, how do you think about the fact that Mbappe has now got say over the type of players that PSG are gonna buy? That is a bit crazy. I didn't realize that was yeah. Uh, the fact is like the kind of. Uh, the contract he's got is that it he he's back in free agency. Come, like first of all, good on you, Mbappe, for getting your money, like five hundred million. Like yeah, you go, son. Like yeah, <laughs> like absolutely. Like you can't can't argue with that. He's basically gone. I wanna. I want to become the guy who leads the, t- uh, you know, gets uh, PSG their first Champions League. Mm. But you know, if you guys are still going to be stupid and do dumb crap, then I'm basically gonna go on to free agency again when I turn 25 in about three years. So right, yeah, you know, you better not be stupid. Yeah, I. But the fact that like, is this a tra- like? Is this a new trend? Is it is football gonna become like basketball? Like LeBron James literally like picks team, yeah, yeah. tells the Lakers which teammates to get. 
I don't think it would quite get that far. But, yeah, I think players are going to start getting more influence again. Um, which, in some cases, will be good. In some cases, perhaps not so good. But, yeah, it won't get basketball level. But you don't, like, 1 in 5 is is different to but, 1 in 11, right? So Yeah, but also, like, compare, is Mbappe the LeBron James of football? I don't think so. No. Is Mbappe the Tom Brady of soccer football? No. No, no. Like, those guys, they have a say who comes to their team. I get it. If it was Ronaldo or Messi, who had a a say and making, uh, you know, and telling them what to do, I'd be like, yeah, he's Ronaldo. He's Messi. Whatever. Yeah, yeah. Things have changed, but, you know, it's Ronaldo and Messi. They always probably had a bit of a say in what happened. Yes. But Mbappe, uh, I, yeah, fair dinkum. Don't get me wrong. If they've, they're willing to give it to you, they're willing to give it to you. Yeah. I oh, know, exactly. If, it, if he can get that sort of um, contract, then, hey, good for him. Hey, I don't think... City or Chelsea get players like that, and I don't think Liverpool's system works like that. But I could see that happen at United. I could see Ronaldo get this sort of contract at United. Yeah. Not the money part, because, you know, he's almost 40, but... Yeah, yeah. The other part. So there's definitely lots of interesting things happening in this offseason to look forward to, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. Even if there hasn't been as many transfers as we would usually like to talk about. Yeah. But yeah, by the time we do our intro episode, there should be. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. <laughs> oh, we've got a good what, four, four weeks, five weeks for then, so I'm sure there'll be some action in that time. But yeah, I mean, if it doesn't, I don't know what I'll do. Like, <laughs> it's like... The silly season is one of the things we look forward to in football. Like, the off-season is not that long, but it's, like, super packed with rumors and, like, craziness. Yeah, yeah. The longer it takes for the business to occur, the more we ramp up this anticipation. So I don't know how much longer I can keep it up. Ah, I would expect in the next week things start to to happen. Maybe two weeks. Give it to mid-July. You'd expect some things there. Oh, by the way, United are still not going to sign a number six. Which is what <laughs> they need. I see we've like, but we may have gotten Frankie De Jong, but he's not a number six. Oh, yeah. also watch as United players expect him to be a number six, just like yeah, Pogba. Yeah, yeah, of course. Obvious traps are obvious. <laughs> obvious. <laughs> I think on that note, that that's all we have time for today. Mm-hmm. And don't forget to come to our Discord. Uh, link in the description below. Uh, have a bit of chat discussion, getting ready for the season, the EPL season, starting in, in August. Um, and a few more chats. And don't forget we'll have our uh, Fantasy League starting with the new season as well. So drafts and everything will be happening and yeah, thank you for listening and look forward to to hearing uh look forward to listening to us next time. Catch you next time.